Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 95 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Scott Lynch, author of the fantasy novel The Lies of Locke Lamora, book one in the Gentleman Bastard series. The long-awaited third book, The Republic of Thieves, is out now. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks Douglas Cohen and Rajan Khanna join us to discuss epic fantasy book series. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Scott Lynch. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. All right, so your new book is called The Republic of Thieves, and it's the third book in the Gentleman Bastard series. So just for yep. readers who are new to your work, do you want to just describe the basic premise of the series? Um, the Gentleman Bastard series, uh, starting with The Lies of Locke Lamora, is uh, essentially a, sword, it's a, it's a set of sword and sorcery crime novels. Um, the protagonists are con artists in uh, sort of a Renaissance-era world where con artistry, as we know it, is not a very developed uh, form of art, and they're essentially the first people to sort of uh, play with the deep and the long con. And uh, it's essentially the story of how they are thrown from bad situation to bad situation, book after book, and have to live on their wits. Uh, so the first book in the series, The Lies of Locke Lamora, got published originally because an, an editor came across the opening chapters, which you posted online. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Um, yes. Back in the dark days of the Internet, or I guess the second dark age of the Internet, um, this is back in, uh, in 2004. I had been uh, part of an online community that is now very, very defunct, unfortunately. And uh, it was a, uh, a discussion forum for people who were very serious about fantasy, double underlined, you know, exclamation point. But there were some really great people involved in that, including uh, Matthew Woodring Stover and uh, Cage Baker and a bunch of other people I'm still in contact with. And, you know, I was like many people, I, I was alleging to write a novel and threatening to write a novel. And finally, people at the community just kind of lost their patience with me and said, look, put up or shut up, you know, show us what you're working on. And I finally did. Uh, so what I posted on a blog uh, was the, what became the prologue to The Lies of Locke Lamora. And uh, everyone said, oh, that's very, very nice. And, uh, you know, went on about their business. And unbeknownst to me, one of them um, was an associate of uh, Simon Spanton, who is an acquiring editor for Galance in London, and uh, it has been my editor since 2004, which is how the story turns out. So Simon contacted me and uh, first said, this is interesting, do you have any more? So I, I produced what became the first chapter of The Lives of Locke Lamora. So at that point, it was about 60 pages in existence. And Simon sent me an increasingly uh, desperate and fast-paced series of emails, you know, basically saying, okay, I, uh, I'd like to approach my buying committee about maybe making an offer, which sped up to, uh, you know, screw them, I'm just going to make an offer. So it, uh, in, in short order, he had secured the rights to the novel, and then all I had to do was actually write the novel. I, I should disclaim at this point, this is not how it usually happens. <laughs> this, this is how it very rarely happens. And uh, my, my, my girlfriend is uh, is making gestures at me in the background, uh, you know, something like a... Uh, 
uh, a man being hanged and and some very rude gestures I can't repeat on the air, but uh, yeah, this is not how she got published. She did it the hard way. We should say that your your girlfriend is also a writer, right? So, uh, yes, I'm sorry, uh, Elizabeth Bear, or as uh, her new legal name uh, goes, four-time Hugo-winning uh, novelist <laughs> Elizabeth Bear. Uh, so you recently posted a series of blog posts uh, taking a look back at the lives of Lakamura, including a post titled, quote, You Suck Lynch, end quote. Uh, what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of that book, looking back on it? Um, you know, looking back on it, I'm, I, you know, it, it's not that I'm not proud of it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And, uh, you know, I, I would not want to rewrite it, even though I think that I, I could rewrite it um, in, in several respects and make it a stronger piece of work. You know, it's a testament to to what it is and what it was. I mean, I was desperate in several ways and very passionate. And that was the, that was the big breakout, you know, the, the big chance to finally do it. So it's an artifact of actually learning how to write a novel as I was writing it. And, um, structurally it has this issue where, um, you've got two plot threads, one of which is in the past and one of which is in the character's present. And, uh, the past episodes sort of wind down and the past story is told, and uh, I started substituting in, um, rather than, you know, more narrative episodes from the past, you know, bits of blatant world building and local lore and, uh, you know, pithy sentiments. And some of these work thematically, but some of them do not. Um, and, of course, you know, it's a first novel, so, you know, my grasp of language is not necessarily as, you know, at what it might have been, my grasp of gender roles, my ability to communicate what I wanted to. You know, it, it is what it is for something written nine years ago. I, I'm still very proud of it. But, you know, all first novels have issues. I thought it was funny on your blog, speaking of structural issues, you said one of your friends took you to a Disney movie and said, now, I've already seen this movie, but I want you to watch it to learn basic plot structure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but back, you know, back several years before uh, the lives of Locke Lamora, even when I was an even more neo 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 fight writer, um, apparently that that was his impression was that basic story structure was eluding me, and to some extent he was right. He was absolutely right. I uh, yeah, I, I appreciated that, and actually I, I've often recommended um, you know if you want to learn plot, you want to learn story, you want to learn how to construct these things on a very basic but effective level what you want are good Pixar films because they are as good a tutorial in basic story crafting as you can possibly find anywhere on earth. A good ones, mind you, there's some you should skip, but, hmm. um, I, I mean, nearly everything they did, uh, from toy story onward for a number of years, um, is, you know, an, an excellent and valid model for a story in any genre. Well, and then the sequel to the Lysa Lakamura Red Seas under red skies, um, have, has there been enough uh, distance from that that you can be objective about that, or is it still too fresh? Do you have any thoughts on that book? Um, well, it was uh, it was written in late 2006, early to very early 2007, and uh, it, it was a different experience because uh, at that point I had, you know, y you learn that you can write a novel and you set out to do it again. So you know, it's not as daunting the second time around. I mean, the project is as daunting, but at least you know you can do it once. Um, Lies was a very rough time for me and for my then fiance, who is now my ex-wife, because we were living on our own together. We moved out on my first advance, and uh, so we were learning to be adults together. We were learning about each other in ways we hadn't previously. 
you know, we were living on our own. We were far from our friends. I mean, we, we moved to the outermost ring of suburbs. We're having lived in the middle of the city, more or less previously. And, uh, you know, I was locked in my room 14 hours a day working like mad to produce this novel. And uh, it was, it was uh, very stressful on our relationship. And she, she basically delivered an ultimatum that the second book could not be like that. And the second book was not like that. We, uh, we for, for a while, got along much, much better. And uh, it was a smoother process, you know, life-wise and writing-wise. And uh, I really wish that I could recall more of the specific process because it's all sort of uh, fading into the gray mists of memory because I don't have the same level of documentation uh, as I did for Lies of Locke Lamora, which, of course, you know, was, was preceded by years of research and false starts and everything that goes into a first novel. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Well, then now let's talk about the, the newest book, the third book in the series, The Republic of Thieves. Now, like uh, like you mentioned, The Lies of Lacamora, this one also has a storyline that takes place in the past and a storyline that takes place in the present. And in the present, our heroes have to engineer uh, a winning election strategy. And in the past, they have to put on a play under very high yep. stakes circumstances. Like, what was it just about theater and electioneering that made you want to make them the focus of the book? Um, well, so some of them are, are, you know, obvious. It's just the, the, the obvious metaphorical parallels to, uh, you know, the life of crime and, and life of false facing that uh, the protagonists, you know, tend to lead. I mean, it's, it's in, in some respects totally congruent with, with both politics and with acting. As Father Chains, the, uh, the mentor figure of this little gang, tells his charges in the Republic of Thieves when they are sent off on this errand, um, they don't know anything about this. And he says, uh, you know, uh, to the contrary, you know, you, you, uh, you've had training in speaking, in deportment, in poise, in manners. You know, you, you've got skills that can be applied. You just need to learn how to apply them on a stage so that people can appreciate them. You know, the experience will be good for you. Get lost. And, you know, politics is, is pretty much, you know, the, the jokes write themselves. Um, you know, as, as Locke and John observe, uh, they're not changing careers. Uh, they're just doing what they, they usually do in another city for different clients. Um, I had always uh, wanted to include, I mean, there, there, was, there was literary discussion in the second book uh, when we bump into a couple of characters who are uh, strangely erudite for pirates. And uh, I've, I've always wanted to sort of uh, expand on that. I mean, Locke's world has a couple. Uh, they, they have a Shakespeare figure and a Marlowe figure. There was this whole uh, artistic flowering in the last years of this empire that collapsed six or seven hundred years previously. And that body of work has been handed down through Locke's culture as, you know, their great plays. And um, it's a very cool uh, narrative framework to hang everything on. Um, you know, it's the classic play within the play. Well, yeah, and the the title of the book, The Republic of Thieves, actually comes from the play that the characters perform. And yes. you actually you go into a, a, an enormous amount of detail about the plot of that play and the characters, and you actually provide uh, long sections of the play that's written in this sort of Elizabethan poetic style. Um, mm-hmm. How much of the play did you actually sort of flesh out in your mind, and what was it like uh, writing those poetic passages? Uh, I, I wrote a uh, I wrote a plot summary. Um, you know, it's it's your your standard issue, um, you know, Elizabethan five act structure sort of play. Um, so I just scribbled out all the events it needed to cover, and then just wrote the bits that seemed most interesting. But I, I think I, I like to think that enough glimpses of it are given so that the reader can construct, you know, the the full 
length and breadth of the plot. As for writing it, um, I decided very early on that I would avoid uh, writing in, in strict iambic pentameter simply because it was always going to be awkward and uh, the expressiveness was going to be constrained to the format and whatever was being said was going to be lessened. Because I'm not a particularly great poet and compressing what I wanted to say into that format was never struck me as a very wise decision. So it's, it's, it's not meant to directly emulate anyone's notion of, you know, blank verse or iambic pentameter. It's, it's, it's just meant to work and sound a bit different than the standard spoken language of, of Locke's world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one really cool section of the book is the initiation ritual for the priesthood, priesthood of the cricket warden. Uh, how did you come up with that? Um, well, that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, actually. I think that scene turned out really well. And if I may be allowed to gloat, um, I, I dig that section of the book. I think that when, you know, every, every once in a while you have something turn out more or less exactly as you want it, and you just kind of go, ah. And then it doesn't happen again for months. But uh, that one happened. That one was an ah. You know, because the, uh, the thieves in Locke's world have this lay priesthood, this secret priesthood that is, you know, very... They, they take it seriously. I mean, this is the... They're very devout, but they don't have temples. They don't have constant meetings. They don't have uh, literature. You know, they have an oral tradition and a lot of scuttling around in shadows. And I wanted to show, um, I mean, as, as part of showing the general structure of Theron religion, because this is how they all work, all the, the 12 gods and, and goddesses, and then their, their nameless 13th uh, brother, the black sheep of the family. You know, they, they, all, all their theology follows this pattern that essentially you can, uh, you can pledge yourself to live loosely on behalf of all the gods, or you can choose one that you're going to uh, uh, be especially faithful to. And, you know, it's supposed to be a two-way street. You know, you are, you are supposed to expect better things of that god, but you are also expected to, uh, you know, open your wallet more often on their behalf. And uh, the third and deepest level of religious devotion is, of course, becoming a priest or a priestess. And I just I, I wanted to show these characters interacting with this structure and how it physically and emotionally and uh, you know sociologically works, and uh, you know also how it doesn't work. You know, it, this is not a grand gathering of every thief in the city. Um, it's always easier to mouth platitudes and proclaim yourself to be a believer than it is to show up on time at the temple. And that's very much the case for this initiation ceremony. You know, it's only a segment of the, uh, the underworld of Gamora. It's not everybody. Well, I mean, and speaking of thieves, I think one character that readers have been looking forward to seeing the most is Sabatha, and who was mentioned in some of the earlier books, but this book is the first time we really see her as a character. Now, did, the, did that character, did you know back when you wrote The Lies of Lakamora, what she was like, or did the character develop in your mind uh, in the meantime and as you started writing this book? I, uh, well, I, I tried to put her in The Lies of Lakamora. One of the uh, failed prologues that I wrote for the first book became a chapter in Republic of Thieves called The Undrowned Girl and is there in Republic of Thieves in more or less its original form. And uh, I had decided, it became very apparent to me very early on that um, Sabatha should either be a full part of the proceedings or she should be concealed 
for maximum effect until it was time for her to do so. I did not want her to have just one little appearance and then vanish uh, for a long, long period of time. It Again, it was structurally unbalanced and just seemed wrong. Plus, it seemed like it might be a lot of fun to torment readers um, in, in the best possible way. I mean, you, you don't want to. As much as they, they scream and howl, um, you know, part, part of the fun is not revealing every secret at the earliest possible opportunity. You know, part of the fun is saving something for every book in the series. As for who she was, when I started writing Lies, I had a conception of her as, as a young girl. And uh, she was, I mean, she, she's a redhead for a very simple reason. I mean, she is and, and, and was originally um, an homage to Charlie Brown's uh, little redheaded girl. An eternal symbol of Charlie Brown's unrequited love. Um, which is something I very much sympathized with as a boy growing up. I had a lot of, you know, little redheaded girls in my life. <laughs> and, um, um, but uh, she's evolved uh, well beyond that because it's, as it turns out, what's going on between her and, and Locke is not unrequited love, even though it, it was at first. It's, uh, it's, it's just the meeting of two very complex, uh, you know, minds and worldviews, and they each had their problems and and weaknesses and hang-ups and limitations. And I, I leave it to the reader to judge. And you know, part of the fun of not having her for two books is um, I, I want readers to wonder just how much of what they thought they've learned about her comes from an unbiased source. Because with, with Locke and John and the Sanzes as our, our only real witnesses to who Sabbath was and, and what she did, you know, there, there's got to be an element of uh, you know, serious observer bias here. Um, and she, she, when she shows up, might or might not confirm those things that the boys have been saying about her all these years. You know, I, I leave it to the reader to judge. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in this uh, in this book, we see Sabatha express the feeling that she's been treated differently by the gang because she's a girl and that they don't um, take her opinions as seriously. And mm -hmm. I also saw that you wrote in your blog, you said that in Republic of Thieves, you wanted to quote, uh, frame some issues of consent and false idealization that I think sex in SFF in science fiction fantasy has at times been prone to. Um, yes. Just, just talk about that aspect of the story. Um, well, this is you know this is a relationship between teenagers, and I mean, you know a lot can say, but they have a lifelong relationship. You know, it, it start starting when they were you know when when she was perhaps seven or eight, and he was about six or seven. But you know they're they're teenagers together, and uh, this is a very you know, you, when you're a teenager, you are essentially, uh, you know, you, you've grown um, no protective coverings on your nerve endings yet. You are a bundle of nerves and hormones, um, you know, and, and everything is, is felt so deeply and, and so hard and everything is, is so new and everything is more difficult than it needs to be. And, uh, you know, we in our culture, you know, we not just in fantasy, not just in literature, but in general, I mean, listen to pop music or at least, you know, cheesy pop music. You know, we, we fictionalize this version of, um, you know, carefree teenage years and easy teenage romance. And, you know, oh, isn't it, isn't it wonderful to be young and in love? And, and you know, everything is, is just uh, effortless. And, you know, those of us that actually remember a teenager, you know, remember that, I mean, yeah, everything was wonderful. These sensations are, are wonderful and exciting the first time it happens. But goddamn, it's difficult. You know, it's it's confusing. 
it's stressful. It's, you know, you're wrapped up in so many competing stresses um, on so many different sides of your life. You know, it's not an idyllic, uh, you know, summer of, uh, of nonsense, you know, as, as adults would have it. And I really wanted to translate that into Locke and Sabbath's situation. Uh, and actually, there was a piece on Jezebel last year that mentioned your response to a reader who criticized you for writing about female pirates. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, that guy. Uh, that was okay. <laughs> that was in relation to Red Seas Under Red Skies. That actually happened in 2005, which is hard to believe. But um, I hadn't even written Red Seas Under Red Skies at that point. All I had were a few scattered scenes. Um, and so I, I posted one as a preview, and it happened to be that little bit with Zamira Drakasha. And uh, it's made very clear in the text that Zamira is black. And so I got this email from this complete tool. And, you know, I, I don't respond to every stupid... Fortunately, I don't get an awful lot of crazy email. I don't get an awful lot of stupid email. But this guy's tone of voice and the approach he took spurred me to, to send him a love note back. You know, it was the evangelical, you know... Hey, dude, you know, let me rescue you from yourself. You're a prisoner of political correctness. You, what are you doing? You don't have to put black people in your fiction, you know, like I'd been brainwashed or forced to do it, um, you know, and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, like I could be free with all the other free white writers who don't have to write about black people in their work. And I just so I, I snapped, you know, it's it's fucking offensive to me. You know, I, I, I live in the 21st century. And, you know, if you want to sulk and pretend that we don't, you know, that's your own business, but don't tell me to participate in your bullshit. And it was that, you know, whole, well, now I'm not going to tell my friends to buy your book. You know, fine. Don't tell your racist fuckhead friends to buy my book. I am happier with the sales of the hundreds of people who, you know, wrote in appreciation of me telling him to get bent. I mean, I've seen a couple people saying, oh, well, that was ours. Well, you know what? I don't give a shit. Um, if you, if you send me stupid demands, uh, in my email, you don't get the right to dictate what you should expect in return. You, you should probably expect something very colorful in return. Have, have there been other occasions like that where you felt compelled to respond to people? Um, there, there've been a handful that I felt compelled to respond to. There, there was another guy, um, that I responded to in public, um, a couple years later, over um, the whole, you know, the, some of us experimented with uh, donation model online serial fiction. And, um, you know, so, someone sent me this really snotty, you know, hoity-toity, you know, oh, you're, you're a professional author, you know, who are you to rattle your cup like a bum on the side of the road selling pencils? You know, it's that whole misconception of, um, you know, all authors are rich, you know, we're just rolling in dough and you know, again, it was the tone of voice, the, the weird demands, and, and the, you know, the pretend air of disinterest, the feigned disinterest. You know, well, I'm not very interested. And that's like, bullshit. Of course you're interested, or you wouldn't be sending me this email. You didn't stumble across my frickin' planetary romance serial project, you know, by accident. You, you were interested in the subject or in my work. And, you know, you he got this just very sort of controlling attitude. So, you know, I, I smacked him around in public and he actually sent me an email saying, I'm very sorry. I, you know, I think I was a dick. 
the, the guy who sent me the, the Zemir Drakasha note, I've never heard back from, but uh, this guy apologized. And I guess we should say your um, serial project is called Queen of the Iron Sands. It's sort of a Edgar yes. Rasporow's homage. Um, you want to just talk about how, how is that going? Do you think serial fiction is uh, working? In front? Um, it, it's it's uh, it, it, was, it was created for a couple of reasons. I mean, it was a dream project, literally. I, I I had an extremely vivid dream that I was holding a new book in my hands and woke up to discover that the book didn't exist, which is you know just the worst thing you can do to your own head can do to you when you're a writer. I mean, you know, dreaming of a new book. And, um, it was an experiment, uh, you know, a stylistic experiment. And it was also a therapeutic effort because I had, and I, I still have, you know, some pretty serious anxiety issues, but I mean, they were overwhelming at this point. I mean, they've, they have been mitigated now with, you know, therapy and medication and, uh, you know, more life experience. But, uh, oh, they, they were bad when this began because I was not in treatment and I was not medicated. And, uh, and I, I attempted to use this project as a way of dealing and with and overcoming my own anxieties at which it was only intermittently successful. And it, is it is uh, you know on a sort of unofficial hiatus at the moment because uh, Republic of Thieves is just eating so much of my time, but it will continue. You know it it is plotted out and uh, it is uh, you know it's good to go and will continue. And I, I want to finish it and have it be a novel length project. So you know the character Locke uh, really struggles with some depression and hopelessness at the beginning of both uh, the Republic of Thieves and. Red Seas Under Red Skies. Uh, do you feel like uh, your own experiences with that help inform the character? Or, um, Well, you know, at, at the time I wrote Red Seas, um, you know, I was pretty functional. I was perhaps, you know, occasionally moody and quirky, you know, in, in that, you know, the, the way that artists are traditionally supposed to be, you know, we're, we're supposed to be flakes and weirdos. And um, I did not consciously write anything that was happening to him from the perspective of depression. I mean, I only... I, I was I was working on Republic from about late 2007 onward, and uh, you know I didn't receive uh, you know anything resembling a diagnosis. I didn't begin uh, therapy until 2009. Um, so there were you know two long years of you know worsening situation, and uh, you know it was, it was still bad for you know quite some time afterward. I mean it it never magically goes away. It hasn't magically gone away. It's it's just not as bad as it was. Um, you know, I've talked at length about it on my live journal and in a couple other places. Um, I don't want to infect everything I write with, you know, whatever's, you know, whatever the latest thing that's happened in my life is, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to explore depression through my work right now. Black has had some pretty understandable situational depression. I mean, he's a he's a mercurial sort of character, you know, and uh, that's uh, his, his temperament suits itself to periods of sulkiness and and you know low periods. And I, I, I without getting into too formal a diagnosis of what ails him, I you know I think there's you know there's explanations for it other than clinical depression. The book has changed. Republic of Thieves was was a distinctly different animal when I began writing it than it is now, you know, because the guy who went in on one side is very different than the author who turned in the book. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been through this illness, the therapy, you know, my divorce, you know, I've, I, my, my view of some things in the world has shifted significantly. And 
I think it makes for a better book. And you know, of course that, of course that's what you would expect me to say. You know, you know, oh, it's it's a it's a really fortunate thing we've had this five and a half year pause. I think it's great. Everybody should try it. Um, you know, obviously I'm going to try to sell it that way. But you know, seriously, um, hmm. it's uh, it, it, it was it was written as a it, it started out being written by a guy who thought that he was in a relationship that was going to last forever. And it is, it, it was finished by a guy who made the discovery that relationships uh, are work. And, and that's a very, very, very trite and simple way of putting it. But um, the whole, you know, one true love, uh, you know, and it happens by destiny thing, you know, it just, it, it, it's not what the book is about. Uh, it's, you know, the book is sort of dedicated to shooting that whole notion down. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that uh, you're in a relationship now with uh, writer Elizabeth Bear. Um, has spending all that time with her influenced your writing generally, or uh, this book in particular? Um, well, I've uh, it, it has influenced my process most definitely, and you know she gets uh, to be the first set of eyeballs on anything I write. So you know her input is very important. She and I, uh, we are both. Um, you know, as we, we've we've discovered, we are both. Um, <laughs> Strong-willed individuals with serious control issues, and um, when, when two two type A's, you know, butt heads like that. I mean, we we have not fully integrated our you know creative processes. Uh, you know, we, we we've tried to collaborate a couple of times, but we're still we're still working on getting it right. You know, we we have not slipped effortlessly into one another's narratives, but she seems to trust me to give her a lot of feedback. Uh, you know, as a first reader and an editor. And I trust her in the same fashion. Um, she's a very, very, very sharp cookie, as you might expect. And uh, I've always been a very, very uh, sort of lone wolf sort of author. I mean, I've never had a writing group. Um, I essentially, you know, lived under a rock and, and, you know, hissed at anybody who tried to look at my work in progress. And this was not emotionally healthy, and this was not necessarily artistically healthy. So, you know, I, I'm still not part of anything I would describe as a writing group, but I have broadened my little circle of trusted readers. Um, you know, I've, I've added new people. I've made an effort to uh, seek out new opinions. And that, I mean, that started with her. Um, she's, uh, her influence has definitely, you know, brought that um, approach to things into, uh, you know, into my affairs. All right, cool. So uh, on your blog, you mentioned that at a coffee clutch at ReaderCon, you told an embarrassing personal story from your teenage years about a prank that caused unexpected emotional grief <laughs> and somehow involves the stainless oh, steel rockets. Do, do you care to oh, share that? Yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would actually prefer not to. Um, <laughs> it is a very amusing story. It is a story of how Scott learned many, many difficult and important things. But it is also a very, uh, I mean, it, the, the, the thing is, there was a party that was hurt. And, uh, you know, I'm just not comfortable with, you know, having a recorded version of me talking about what I did. I mean, it was, I was, I was a minor, I was, I was still a teenager, but it was, it was a very complex prank involving an awful lot of uh, phone shenanigans. And uh, I mean, you know, n nothing creepy or stalkery, just, a, you know, a lot of, services and goods were ordered and sent to this house, uh, you know, taxis, pizzas, plumbers. These were the days right before ubiquitous caller ID. And, um, and we, we, we thought it was, it, it was harmless harassment, but it was, it, it actually scared them. And, uh, that was not what we were after. 
at all. So for the sake of that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell the story like I'm proud of it. But the uh, the stainless steel rat book, I mean, I, I love the stainless steel rat books. And it's it's not their fault. I took them to hearts and, uh, you know, was, was a very, very energetic 16-year-old with a little too much time on my hands. And, you know, maybe my social conscience was a little bit underdeveloped at that point. And, you know, the uh, the thought of sneaking into places and pranking people and, you know, being a general, uh, you know, malcontent, uh, you know, stainless steel rat sort of character was very appealing. And eventually I learned the hard way that, uh, you know, <laughs> um, you know, people have feelings that you can't control and people have situations you might not know about and you might accidentally scare the bejesus out of somebody without meaning to. Uh, so speaking of coffee clutches and at the risk of uh, sitting off a rant, uh, you recently posted that you're declining to attend the coffee clutches at World Fantasy uh, this year. You want to tell us about that? Great. <laughs> I, I, I love controversy. Controversy is awesome. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I guess I, I have been public about this, so I will, I will try to be as polite as I can. Yes, in relation to the World Fantasy Convention this year, um, I, I'm, I'm a member of a couple different mailing lists, and a number of authors who are attending um, were contacted and asked if we would like to, you know, do these coffee clutches. And uh, some of the things that were offered to us in these terms, we found them, they made us uncomfortable. Um, WFC, or, 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 you know, whoever is responsible for this announcement, the organizers of WFC in Brighton, announced that there would be a five-pound surcharge for those attending the coffee clutches. It really seems like nickel and diming the participants. And since the participants in a coffee clutch um, are basically, you know, readers and people who want to meet us as authors, we, we bristled because we felt like our readers were being mistreated or insulted. And the, the, the wording of it has been insulting. You know, maybe insulting is a strong way of saying it, but uh, impolitic at the very least. You know, the whole presumption that, uh, you know, the people signing up for these things must be presumed to be such deadbeats that they've got to have a, a preemptive monetary fine in place to keep them from running off someplace else. And, you know, I, I don't mean any, any disrespect to those people who have elected to do the coffee clashes. Um, and the con has not been particularly evil in its communication. They've been very polite. You know, they haven't uh, shown up and burned poop on my doorstep or anything. Uh, you know, I don't think they're bad people for this. It's just, it's just part and parcel with the fact that a lot of the communications going out from this WFC, for whatever reason, have not been particularly diplomatic, friendly, or well-considered. And, um, you know, that's, I, I like WFC. I want to support WFC. You know, I, I want to be a good con-going citizen. You know, I, I agreed to be at a panel, too. It's just uh, this particular instance, I think, went a little too far towards something that I really can't support. All right, cool. And just uh, as we start wrapping this up here, do you want to mention some of the other projects that you've done the last few years? Uh, on your website, you mentioned the Effigy Engine and he built the wall to knock it down. Um, he Built the Wall to Knock It Down is uh, the lead-off short story in a collection called Tales of the Far West from Adamant Entertainment. It is a Weird West setting that uh, takes a little getting used to because it is not just the historical United States. It is all an analogy and a remix. Um, it is uh, you, you, So you, you have a, an East Coast empire that is actually sort of a cross between uh, 
feudal China and uh, the United States in the 1860s, 1870s. And then you have this um, magically unrolling frontier that just keeps on going to the Western horizon with no evident end in sight, you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of leagues. You know, so it's decidedly not our world. It's the tropes of our world um, stretched on a totally different canvas. And um, that short story is my first contribution to it. The Effigy Engine is a, a short story in um, a collection from Jonathan Strayan. Um, it is the first uh, Solaris book of new fantasy, and it was out in May of this year. It was called uh, Fearsome Journeys. And it featured a really, really, really good set of original tales. It's got uh, Salveen Ahmed and Elizabeth Baer and Ellen Kushner and um, K.J. Parker, um, Jeffrey Ford, Ellen Clagis. I mean, just a, a bunch of really good stuff. The Effigy Engine is uh, the first tale in a little sequence I'm calling The Red Hats, uh, which are my very uh, not-subtle homage to uh, the Black Company stories. And for my sins and presumption, there's a Black Company story in the book, too. But the uh, the Red Hats are, are mercenaries in a uh, a, a sort of uh, a gunpowder and sorcery world. And uh, there'll be more adventures from those guys. The Effigy Engine is, is just the first. There's also, uh, I have a story called A Year and a Day in Old Theradane, uh, which is going to be coming out hopefully in 2014 in a big, big, uh, George R. R. Martin Gardner Dozois collection called Rogues, which is a follow-up to their Warriors anthology a couple of years ago. And uh, there's, uh, you know, I'm in it, Neil Gaiman's in it, um, Matt Hughes is in it, I believe. And basically it's uh, a cross-genre anthology of original tales of, uh, you know, thieves and skullduggery and uh, everything the word rogue is associated with. And uh, I wrote a, a nice long story for that one that is... Uh, once again, set in a fairly high magic sword and sorcery setting with lots of action. And uh, I'm pretty proud of it, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I've got other, other short stories lined up. I'm doing, I'm doing a lot better functionality-wise these days, and I'm getting past some of the anxiety and, and trouble I've had with these. So they're, my, my short story production is definitely accelerating. And uh, it's, I, I would really like to continue building, you know, a solid retinue of short pieces to accompany the novels. Um, so yeah, there's that. And there's the, uh, the next book in the gentleman bastard sequence after Republic, uh, which is the thorn of Emberlane, which is what I'm writing at the moment. And, uh, there's also a set of novellas coming from subterranean press, um, which will bridge the story between, uh, Republic of thieves and thorn of Emberlane. And the first of those will be called, uh, the mad Baron's mechanical attic. And when can we expect to see those? Um, I, good question. I don't know if it's going to be late this year or early next. Um, I, I, I still have stuff to turn in to Bill um, at Subterranean Press, but uh, the artwork is finished for it. So once, once I get my crap together and, and pass it all on to him, the production process should be relatively quick. All right, cool. So, I mean, we're certainly looking forward to all that stuff. And I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, okay. we've been speaking with Scott Lynch. His new book is called The Republic of Thieves. So, Scott, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Scott Lynch for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be joined by two guest geeks. 
So first up, we've got Douglas Cohen making his sixth appearance on the show. He's the former editor of Realms of Fantasy magazine, and together with John, he co-edited the book, Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Interzone, Weird Tales, and Space and Time, and he now offers editorial feedback to aspiring writers via his website at douglascoheneditorial.com. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, always glad to be back, guys. And also joining us today is Rajan Khanna, who you may remember from our panels on Ray Bradbury and Weird Western Movies. He's a regular contributor to Tor.com and Lit Reactor, and his short story Card Sharp appeared in John's anthology The Way of the Wizard. A sequel story, Secondhand, will be appearing in John's upcoming Weird West anthology Dead Man's Hand. Raj has also written a novel called Falling Sky, which he just sold to Pyre Books. So Raj, welcome to the show, and huge congrats on selling your first novel. Thanks, and thanks for having me back. And we'll want to talk to you more about that in, uh, later on in the show. And we'll also be getting to our panel in just a minute. But first up, John has a new project he'd like to mention. So John, take it away. So I'm doing a Kickstarter, and uh, it's called Help Fund My Robot Army. And it's an anthology of magical, improbable, and alternate world crowdfunding projects. So I got a story submitted to me at Lightspeed Magazine called Help Fund My Robot Army by Kepi Curley. And it's, it was a story told in the form of a Kickstarter pitch. So he has project goals and rewards and all that kind of stuff. And it's about a mad scientist trying to fund a robot army. Um, and I just thought it was really funny. And I, and, but then by the time I got to the end of it, I thought like, well, I could totally do a whole anthology of stories like this where people imagine these fictional Kickstarters and they tell a science fiction or fantasy story using the, the, the restrictions of the format to tell the story. And, uh, so we're doing a Kickstarter right now. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's going to feature, uh, the anthology is going to have Kepi's story in it, and then it's going to have a, about 25 original science fiction or fantasy stories in addition. Um, it's going to include uh, authors like Monty Cook, Tobias Bakel, Tim Pratt, Sean and McGuire, uh, David Malky, Scott Sigler, uh, Mary Robin Koal, and uh, and lots of other great people. So um, if you want to take a look at the Kickstarter, just go to johnjosephadams.com slash Kickstarter, and that'll redirect you to the Kickstarter page, and you can check out all the rewards and, and everything. And actually, if you check out our video over there, you get the full pitch. But as you're hearing the pitch, you actually get to watch adorable kittens. And I think that might be my actually my best idea ever is uh, instead of having to look at me tell you about my Kickstarter, you can look at kittens. And uh, so, yeah, and you can adopt them, too. So I'm also doing a good a good deed, uh, theoretically. And you can see John's cat, Chewy, also stars Indeed. in this video. But you can't have him. You can adopt <laughs> everyone else except him. Does he make the Chewbacca noise? He does not, but he does purr an awful lot, and he is, uh, he's very furry like Chewie. That'd be funny if you were trying to give away your cat in this <laughs> video. Uh, I don't think that would be received as well. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, uh, let's get to our panel, which, as we mentioned, we'll be discussing epic fantasy book series. And what sort of inspired this topic for me was, you know, uh, Scott Winch's book, The Lies of Locke is really one of my all-time favorite fantasy books. And uh, it's one of the few series right now that every time a new book comes out, I just automatically am going to buy it. You know, that one and Song of Ice and Fire are the two series right now where I will just buy the latest book, uh, you know, just automatically. And so I sort of was thinking about uh, why is that? What is it about a series that makes you buy the books automatically? Because uh, there are certainly books that I've enjoyed more than I've enjoyed, for example, you know, Feast for Crows. But they haven't made me sort of motivated me to buy every book in the series, uh, the way I, I buy the Song of Ice and Fire books. So uh, I think that's just the first thing I'd like to talk about. 
And so I'm, first, I'd like you guys to just say, are there a series like that for you that you are just going to automatically buy the, the latest book in it? Um, so Raj, why don't you go first? Are there any series like that for you right now? Um, well, Song of Ice and Fire for me as well. But, uh, I, you know, in terms of series, there aren't that many that I keep up with. But like, say, The Dresden Files, it's not epic fantasy, but there's like 14 books out now. And every time a new one comes out, I have to pick it up. And for me, that's, it's a case of if you're invested so long in a world and you've kind of, you know, spent all this time reading it, I feel like, you know, there's a part of me that's always like, and, and The Dresden Files, I think, are also still good. But there's always a part of me, even in series where the quality drops, that I, I need to know what's going to happen. You know, like, I need to see where they're going to take the story after that investment. Uh, how about Doug? Which uh, series? Are, I, I have a feeling uh, you're hmm. on board with Game of Thrones as well. But uh, yeah, are, are there I, any? I'm going to be I'm going to be a broken record and say Game of Thrones. Uh, besides that, you know, I used to read a ton of epic fantasies. I'm not reading as many these days. But uh, when Patrick Rothfuss's third book in his King Killer Chronicles trilogy comes out, I know I'll be checking that one out. Maybe not immediately, but definitely in the near future because. The first book really sunk its teeth into me, and since it's just a trilogy, it's a very contained story, I definitely am going to see it to the end, because, you know, there are a lot of books, uh, or I should say series out there, where, you know, they start off strong, and at some point they lose their fire, and I just kind of say, that's enough for me. But I'll give you the notable exception, where I wrapped it up not too long ago, is Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. Uh, that was probably the first really, really big epic fantasy I started reading. And I was 14 at the time, which I think that's kind of the perfect age to discover Robert Jordan. And I stayed with it all those years. And even like when the book started to dip in quality, as a lot of fans thought they did, I just said, come hell or high water, I am going to read that final book. I have to see how it all turns out. So, you know, Brandon Sanderson, uh, finished the for the last book, I don't know, it was close to a year ago that it came out now, I guess. So I finally read that one, and that was like something that I had been building toward over 15 years, kind of like what Raj was saying is, you know, you get invested, and you just need to know. And in that one, it was just like the memory of how deep it sunk its teeth into me. It kept me going, even when I wasn't enjoying the later books. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to Wheel of Time, but uh, John, do you have any other series that you're uh, following like that? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, like you guys, uh, I, I really love the Song of Ice and Fire books, and I mean, definitely that's my number one epic fantasy series. Like, if a new book comes out, I'm definitely going to jump on board with that. I mean, especially since I was behind for so long and I had to fight to avoid spoilers for so many years. When I finally caught up, now I'm completely caught up. When the next book comes out, I'm going to read that thing immediately, you know, because I feel like ah, I've achieved something. I'm actually caught up. And uh, otherwise, I think probably the only uh, series is Scott Lynch's, uh, like you, Dave, but. Um, I, the funny thing is, is that I would have said, uh, in years past, I certainly would have said the dark tower. And I mean, that's sort of only sort of kind of epic fantasy. I mean, I've seen people refer to it as epic fantasy. It's not typically what I think of as epic, but, um, but the thing is like, uh, as much as I love the, the dark tower, I mean, a new book did come out a couple of years ago and I, and, or a year or two ago and I, and I, and I didn't actually read it yet. Um, although admittedly that series actually is complete and that book that came out recently was filling in backstory, you know, so it's not like, it's not like I don't know what happens at the end. I already know what happens at the end. So I, I feel like that sort of uh, gives me a bit of a reprieve as a fan. 
But the other thing is that just, uh, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of time to read novels at all these days. I mean, I, so much of my reading time is devoted to short fiction that I, I, I read, I have time to read very few novels. And when it comes to reading novels, I have even less time to read gigantic, you know, thousand page novels. So it, it's hard to fit it all in and uh, still do my job. Yeah, because I had actually, I had really given up on epic fantasy. Um sort of uh, around college age because I, I just read too many bad ones and yeah the, the fact that they're just this you know eight or ten book series of these gigantic doorstopper books it's it's really uh you're really reluctant to embark on one and it was just so many people told me i had to read song of ice and fire and that sort of got me back into it but yeah and and now that i you know <laughs> since i've been doing the podcast you know i don't have i definitely don't have time to just read like six gigantic books uh, just for fun you know that aren't related to somebody we're interviewing or something. Um, so I'm not really uh, up on epic fantasy in the last four years or so. But I thought it was funny, Doug, what you were saying about, you know, about Wheel of Time was that one thing that I, I never really got into that series. I, I read the first one and it just didn't grab me. I actually, I, re I didn't read it until after uh, Game of Thrones. So it, it, I think it really suffered by comparison. But but one thing that really struck me is that Wheel of Time fans would all say, oh, uh, the first like four or five uh, Wheel of Time books were really good, but the last five or six have just been awful. And I would say, like, why, if they've been awful, why would you read six awful books in a row? Like, mm -hmm. give up already. Especially um, six awful thousand-page books. Yeah. It's it's a hard thing to explain if to someone that's not a Wheel of Time fan, because, like, what you're saying, that's the reason I gave up on a lot of other epic fantasy series, but I stuck with Wheel of Time. Uh, it's a number of different things. One is Robert Jordan. If this, if the story was singing to you when you first grabbed it, the level of immersion that he created in that story and that world was complete. And like when you factor in the battle that was promised come the end in your head, based on like the level of immersion that you're experiencing. It's just like a gut reaction. It's just like, I can't wait to read that. And when the book started to slip in quality, it went from, I can't wait to read that to, I'm still going to read that. <laughs> uh, it's it's just like the memory of that promise, you know? And I guess for me, it was almost like a part of my childhood too. You know, I'm not like 10 years old here, but 14. And it was one of those, uh, you know, foundational books that I was reading when I was first getting into this. And it was just like this link that kept me going. And I just pushed on uh, because, yes, there were some really, really difficult books to get through uh, for some fans, including myself. And it was just the promise of what you envisioned all those years ago. Because I, I think part of it is also just I've been reading all these years. Damn it, I'm gonna see the end of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just a whole bunch of factors. Uh, but now that I've finished Robert Jordan's series, I can't ever see another epic fantasy series coming along again where I get five or six books into it and it just gets lousy. And I say, well, you know, I'll keep reading so I, these next five, six books so I can get to that amazing apocalypse. No. That's done with. If you want me to get to your amazing apocalypse, you got to keep my attention throughout and keep me pleased throughout. Well, I was going to say that I used to just be baffled by Wheel of Time fans, but now that I'm so hooked on 
Song of Ice and Fire, mm. I can sort of start to understand. Like it would, you know, it would take a bunch of really bad books for me to totally give up on that series. I'm so invested in it now, mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, yeah, I can sort of, I have more sympathy for those guys now. Um, but uh, Raj, did you have something you wanted to throw in? Well, I was just gonna go back to what Doug was saying about you know what age he was when he started reading Wheel of Time, and I think there are certain things that you read at a certain time in your life that just kind of, like he said, they kind of get inside of you. Um, and this isn't a personal example on my end, but my brother, my little brother, uh, he loved the Raymond Feist books when he was, you know, a kid and he picked up every single one of them that came along the the Rift War saga. And there have been probably more than 20 at this point in time. And he keeps writing more. Uh, and my brother will say to me, yeah, you know, they're kind of not what they used to be right now, but he'll continue to pick them up. And I think it's because it's that idea of like, you know, the, it it mattered to you at a certain point of time, and it also, I, I mean, even I feel this sometimes. You just kind of want to check in and say, like, oh, you know, like, what is he doing with this world now? Like, where is he taking it? And even though I might not necessarily like or agree with what he's doing, it's his world, and it's like checking in with an old friend. Like, oh, what are you doing today? And they're like, you know, I decided to become a stripper, and you might be like, <laughs> that's a bad thing, but you know, you still want to check in with your friend. So, I mean, maybe that's a really bad analogy, but still, like, you know, you might not, I think there's something to be said for not necessarily being enthused by what that person is doing, but it's their creation and you, you kind of feel like you, you still want to kind of see what's going on. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if the, the reading experience is anywhere near the same, but I think there's that curiosity. Yeah. And I, th- I, I think you can love something without reservation at, at the age of 14 mm-hmm. that you can't, <laughs> uh, you know, in your thirties or whatever. I mean, you know, like, uh, my favorite fantasy series of all time is Roger Slosny's Amber series. And I mean, I was just absolutely enthralled by those books, uh, when I discovered them and it's actually, and, and uh, it's been really sort of shocking to me that I try to show them to other people. And a lot of people, you know, as adults read them and they do love them, but a lot of people just don't get into them at all. And it's kind of funny when I, when I explain, when I, when I give all the caveats I give, I'm like, oh, well, book five mm. is really, really bad. And books nine and 10 are really bad. Uh, you know, like I, I sort of listen to myself and I'm like, you know, if someone were saying this to me, I would say like, why would I want to read a series where, you know, three, possibly more of the books are really, really bad. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm so in love with the milieu, uh, you know, I love them despite all their flaws, but I can definitely understand if someone wasn't invested in them, like I was, how they would just be put off by that. I agree with you completely, Dave, because I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the Amber stuff. That's like my favorite series as well. And I just finished my post on the last book. I, I've been doing a reread on tour.com of all the series. And I just posted the one for the 10th book today. So the, the end of all of the novels. And, you know, as I'm writing up these posts about these books that I love, that I love so much about this world that I love and these characters that I love, I'm realizing that there's a lot of stuff in those books that I don't love, you know, like I, I sit there and I'm like, well, this part I kind of don't like and I ignore it and I keep just reading on. And, you know, I wasn't 15 or 14 when I read those. I think I was like in college, but they still kind of became something. And I, I think there's, it, it brings up another point to, to these kind of love, hate relationships we have, I suppose, that if something's unique and you can only get that feeling through this one series of books, you know, not, not that all books, you know, like, like epic fantasy that they tend to pull on the same tropes, but with Amber, for me, there, 
I, I've never managed to find that fusion of ideas in anything else and that tone and that, I guess, alchemy of things. So I keep reading it and I'll go back and I'll read it again and I'll go back and I'll read it again. And yeah, I read the first five books more often than I read the second five books, but I'll still go back and read those. And I read the Amber Diceless role-playing game material mm-hmm. and I imagine in my head these additional stories, but it's because I think that that book series, like, yeah, it, it, it like fits into some part of my brain and or soul or whatever you want to call it in some way that other books don't. And so, you know, I'm aware that I have really, I guess, conflicting ideas about the whole thing, as you sounds like you do too, David. But like, you know, I, I'm sitting there writing about the Merlin books and being like, I completely hate that there's a, you know, well, it should, it's not spoiling it if it's been out for so long. No, right? don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Okay. But I completely hate whole elements of what that whole second five series is about. But like, I still go back and I read it again and again. And I, I almost like do this weird thing where I, I don't know if you guys do this, but where I'll be like, Oh, I hate that part. So I, I kind of assign it less weight in my mind and focus on the stuff that I do like and kind of almost like soft focus it when I read. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like Raj, I mean, when you say you've read those books over and over, I mean, I've literally read some of them like 50 times maybe some, somewhere on that order uh, you win <laughs> um but so i'm just wondering like which like epic fantasy style books have you guys reread the most oh george martin's books without question <laughs> every time a new book is coming out i sit down and i read all the other books trying to time it that i finish as close as possible to the new book i'll even read the duncan egg stories again so yeah, and I always discover new stuff every time I read them, so there's not even a close second. Yeah, so you've read them about five times then? I'd say so. Yeah, I read the first three five times. Um, how about you, John? Uh, well, I'm not a big rereader in general, and uh, I, I think literally the only epic fantasy books I've ever reread were the first two books of The Song of Ice and Fire, uh, because I read the first two back to back, and then I waited stupidly. I waited for <laughs> for years before I returned to it, and and so just before I launched back into it, I felt like I had to just start over. And since they were so good, I, I didn't mind. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wanted everything really fresh in my mind, because the TV show was about to come on and everything, and so I, uh, I I reread those first two, but that's it. That's that's Those are the only ones, so George wins by default. <laughs> uh, Raj? Um, you know, I'm also not a huge rereader. I, I read the Song of Ice and Fire ones twice i guess before you know reading up to, to the, the last book coming out i suppose to refresh my memory the amber books i mean not i haven't read them as much as you but the first five i've read at least between 10 and 20 times like for a while it was every year every mm. couple of years i would read through that because they're short you know you can yeah. get through them pretty easily yeah yeah it's, it's worth pointing out that like the 10 volume mm-hmm. amber omnibus is about the same size as storm of swords you know right. like yeah, one of the exactly. George R. R. martin books yeah, I was actually going to say, you know, when you were saying how some of the books aren't that good, at least with those, it's like, well, oh, if only two, if two of the books are not good, they're only 200 pages long. At least they're not a thousand pages that you have to wade through in order to continue on with the series that are bad. Yeah, and exactly. And they're so fast paced that there's good stuff in in all mm. of them because it's moving. You know, you're like, oh, you don't like this scene. You know, <laughs> it's going to be over in a page. You know, Right. I mean, the other one I read over and over again is Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. I've probably read mm-hmm. that about five times. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's one you have to read yeah. over. <laughs> yeah, to figure you out know? what's going on. 
the second time was the first time I got a lot of what was going on, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and what's funny about it is that he wrote a fifth book that, you know, the editor basically insisted that he write this fifth book to explain some of the stuff that was going on in the first four. And I've actually... Yeah, Earth, Earth and the New Sun, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've never read it because, like, I don't want to know. <laughs> like, I don't want to mm-hmm. explain too much, you know? I just, mm-hmm. I'm so uh, captivated by the mystery that I'm content to just be mystified over and over again. You know, I find that I read a fair amount, or I should say I reread a fair amount of sword and sorcery because a lot of my favorite sword and sorcery authors, uh, they were writing short fiction. So mm. it's easy to just pick it up and reread my favorite stories like over and over. So like I, the, my introduction to fantasy was Conan. So I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've reread like Tower of the Elephant or some of the other stories in there, and I reread a lot of Zothique by Clark Ashton Smith, and I've reread some of the Fafford and Grey Mauser tales that I like. So, you know, Sword and Sorcery isn't quite epic fantasy. There are distinct differences, but they have more in common than they have differences, in my opinion. Yeah, they're both fair. I consider them both fair game for this topic. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Doug, do you consider? I mean, do any of those um, that you just mentioned, the short story, the linked short stories, do any of them tell an overarching story, or are they all completely episodic? Uh the Conan stories are really episodic. Uh, I know Robert E. Howard; he published a entire novel in Weird Tales, like through you know installments, and some of his novellas were published through installments. But no, nothing ever really linked up. Same thing with Zothique, you know, there might be like a sly reference here and there, but none of the stories really continued into the next story. Uh, Fafford and Great Mouser, I, I guess, maybe yeah. a, little bit, a little bit more, but I haven't read the entire canon of Fafford and Great Mouser, but there was definitely some overarching stuff there with like with their, their mysterious sorceress benefactors who would crop up again and again, so. The girlfriends too. Yeah, the girlfriend. So there was definitely a little bit more of that in Fafford and Grey Mauser. I guess even a little bit more of it in Elric, because with Elric, his past would come to haunt him a lot more often. So, you know, like, I don't want to drop spoilers, but some of the things that he would do in the earlier books would come back and revisit him. But Sword and Sorcery is just, like you said, the I think you used the word episodic. Just overall, it's a lot more episodic than epic fantasy, where just, you know, you have one doorstopper volume and then, you know, it all leads up to another doorstopper volume that comes out 10, 15, 20 years later. And it's like the seventh or 13th or 20th book in the series. Yeah, the Eternal Champion books are, are books that I will pick up, you know, any new book that comes out, even though I have a backlog, I haven't read them all by any means. But I know that the way that Moorcock writes is that, you know, it's sort of like a a puzzle in a way, like, or, or at least they're, they're little glimpses you get of different characters and different situations. And I've always liked that approach where, you know, you're not writing in these separate worlds. There's sort of connections between everything. And sometimes figuring out those connections is part of the fun. So I always pick up every, anything that, that he does. Yeah. See, I, I read an interview with Moorcock where he was saying that some of those Elric books were written, were written in literally like three days. <laughs> uh, Cause he just, you know, he had three days off and, you know, that was all the time he had to write a book. And I, those Amber books, uh, many of them were written very quickly. I think the first book was written in a, a month or something, uh, which obviously doesn't leave you a lot of time to do world building. And so given that that's my favorite series, I wonder what is, you know, how valuable do we consider world building? I mean, often world building is 
held up as the uh, you know the be all end all of mm-hmm. uh, epic fantasy. Well, with like sword and sorcery, which Elric is, like the pace overall usually tends to be a little more breakneck. So when you have a faster pace, I think the world building is naturally not going to be as rich as some of these epic fantasies. Whereas with epic fantasy, the pace can get breakneck at times, but usually things are building up to a crescendo, and then like they cool off, and then they build to another crescendo, and then they cool off. And uh, during a lot of those cool-off times, you know, stuff is still happening, but since the pace isn't, you know, like, breakneck anymore, I think there's more time to fill in the gaps uh, about the world and really build it up into something. And, you know, that's that's not to say that you can't have an interesting world in Sword and Sorcery. Like, I think Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age is one of the seminal worlds in all of secondary fantasy. But, you know, he just never went into the detail that you're going to see in, you know, Tolkien or Martin or Jordan. But then again, Sword and Sorcery also tends to be a lot shorter than epic fantasy. And again, I think that has to do with the pacing. I think it's actually it's it's an interesting question. Um, Like in Song of Ice and Fire, I think the world building is sort of deceptively simple. Um, and I would have said, uh, if you had asked me, I would have said that the characterizations in those story, in the, in those novels by far take the forefront of, of what makes them great. And that the world building is very much in the background. Um, just because like, it's like, well, obviously he built this whole world and he has all these different kingdoms and stuff. And so, but when I think of world building in a science fiction fantasy context, I tend to think of like, well, well, what makes the world actually unique and uh different than anything else i've seen um and 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 in in the case of song of song of ice and fire the world itself isn't that different i mean it has the it has the weird seasons and there's some monsters and magic and stuff but i mean that's not that's not that different than everything else we've seen it's i i think what what really makes it amazing is is just all of the politics and the characters and all that stuff oh, so i i agree with you 100 percent. but in ice and fire george martin also gives you this detailed history of the world as you go along. So for me, I'm also throwing that in with the world. It like gives you a sense of true history for the world, which makes it seem more real. But see, Doug, I, I could honestly do with a lot less world building. I mean, <laughs> like Feast for Crows seems like almost nothing but world building to me. Mm. And I don't know. I, th- I think it's not like, it's not a simple equation of more world building equals better. I think there's a certain point at which, you know, there's just, like even I mean obviously like the author doesn't need to tell you all the details of the of the world but I think there's a certain point at which the the background of the world has gotten so complex that you can't explain things without explaining mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and then the story starts to suffer from this weight of world building. Well, I was just gonna say I mean not to constantly go back to Amber all the time but I was recently reading an essay by Zelazny where he was talking about how when he started writing it he had really very little to to go on. And I think that's kind of the way he used to write anyway, just kind of start writing and see what happened. But he had these images that he was drawing upon. And he said like Amber almost was there in his mind waiting for him to just discover it. Um, And the thing with the Trumps was all kind of seated in his mind. So I think those moments help create, you know, because they're real to him, they help create a real world for us. But I would also say that part of the reason I dislike the second series, in some ways, is because I think he felt the need to start sketching out exactly how things worked and what this, how things connected. And I think the series suffered as a result. So I agree with you that 
you know, you can do too much world building and sometimes just enough is what you need. And to go back to Martin, I mean, apparently someone was telling me that he, he subscribes to the kind of the iceberg method of, mm. of, uh, of world building in the sense that, you know, he only really is concerned with the part that you see above the water mm. and not really the, the weight of everything beneath. And, and I saw him at a Cappy Clatch at Worldcon back in Boston. So this was many years ago where he was talking about how he had no idea what the geography of the world was or, all this kind of stuff. And he was making it up as he went along. But I think, you know, again, with those huge books, you get to a point where you have to stop and think, oh, wait, how does this all fit together? And, you know, these things that I put down, how do, how do I make that make sense? And, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why it's taking him a lot longer these days to, mm. to kind of do what he needs to do. Yeah, I just want to say on Amber, though, I mean, much as I love it, there's they also demonstrate the liability of making stuff up as you go along. Because <laughs> there's stuff in the first book that makes absolutely no sense in light of stuff that you know of the way the cosmology develops in later books. Oh, sure. And like in like in particular, just a, a funny example is that Corwin, the the the, protag uh, the narrator, gives conflicting um, accounts of of his of his own genealogy. And, you know, it's just because Zolazny just like, I don't know, he, he forgot what he had written earlier or whatever. Um, and so people would come up to him at conventions and point this out. And he would say, you know, you're the first person to ever point that out. Just as a joke, because like hundreds of people would do it. And I mean, it's funny because then in the second series, he uh, retcons it to make it so, oh, well, Corwin was so confused because hmm. of various things that had happened to him. That's why he was confused about this stuff. Uh, and there's a funny line about that. But uh, but there, you know, I don't want to make it sound like there's, I think there's a, a healthy balance between you know, not making up enough stuff that you just have stuff that's completely inconsistent from book to book and just having so much mm -hmm. of the world fleshed out so much in advance that it, it's just overcomplicated for the purposes of the story that you want to tell. Actually, you know, that, that uh, reminds me, like, does it, uh, has this guy, has this ever bothered you guys with epic fantasy novels where, you know, you open up a book and there's the map in the front and it's like one continent and then you're like, well, well, what about the rest of the world? And, you know, you, you're reading this story that's, like, epic. The whole world is at stake. And, and you know, if their heroes don't achieve their mission, then, you know, the whole world is doomed. But it's like, well, but all we know is this little continent here. And, I mean, George does a better job of that, where it's like you get to see a larger picture of the world, I think. But um, it seems like a lot of a lot of the epic fantasies, I mean, there's just it's just concerned with that one continent. And, like, who knows what's on the rest of the world? Are they all just these giant water worlds where there's just this one landmass <laughs> and that's it? You know, I don't know. Well, right. Like, when you... Like when you say winter is coming, it always makes me wonder well, what really at the equator too. Like, what about the people <laughs> at the equator? Uh, I mean, are mm -hmm. they gonna are they gonna like find out that winter like the world was doomed? I mean, I think there are some stories that have dealt with this, but like, how much does it suck to be the people who are like living at on the other side of the world from where the actual climactic battle took place and you never even heard about it until <laughs> it's all over? <laughs> okay, well, I mean, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was that. You know, just getting at the question of what makes you want to keep reading a particular series and, and not another one. I really find that what grips me about these epic fantasy series is not even so much the characters or the plot or, or whatever, which, you know, there's only so many things you can do. But what, what really keeps me interested is the, is the mystery of the overall world. So, I mean, like in Song of Ice and Fire, I want to know what's up with the others. Uh, with Scott Lynch, I want to know like what the deal is with the Eldrin, that kind of stuff. And with Book of the New Sun, it's like, what is... <laughs> it's basically everything, because basically everything about the world you don't really understand. But it's that sort of same sort of mystery of just like, what is the underlying reality here? 
Yeah, Dave, I think uh, for most epic fantasies that I've tried over the years, I probably would agree with you. Um, and I would say that, you know, that's what I'm interested in as well. Um, for Song of Ice and Fire, I think it actually is... Uh, like largely the character driven for me though like i i really want to find out what happens to all these different characters and and i'm i'm less concerned i mean i'm i'm definitely concerned in all aspects of it but i mean i'm less concerned with like the mysteries that you're talking about and whatnot and i what i really want to see is all all the characters interacting with each other and and how that's all going to resolve that way see raj what do you think i think it depends i mean i think I definitely agree with you that the questions in a song of ice and fire that you have i also have i also agree with john that there's other things I want to know as well. But I think that definitely does keep me reading. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely for me, those kind of questions are always things I'll, I'll read for. Like, I mean, I need to find out how the cosmology of A Song of Ice and Fire comes together. And if it doesn't in the end, then I'll just have to invent it myself. But, um, and I mean, part of the reason some of these things are so exciting for people is that when those are left, it, it, this goes back to the world building thing, I think too. When they're left undefined, you speculate and you talk to your friends. Oh, I bet it's this. Oh no, I think it's this. And then, but you still want that, like, I guess, canonical answer. And sometimes though, it disappoints you. Yeah. Well, I think I'd, it's sort of inevitably going to disappoint you that the, you know, the mystery is maybe always more intriguing than any solution that could be proposed. But I mean, I think that what's intriguing for me about the metaphysical aspects is that that's the distinctively fantastical part of a fantasy, right? Like every kind of story features characters who fall in love or backstab and die or end up on the end up in power or fall, whatever. And if it's like who's gonna end up on the throne, or who you know, is this character gonna live or die? The different possibilities are more or less like I, I don't know which of the possibilities is gonna come true, but I more or less understand what the possibilities are. Whereas uh, for me, a metaphysical mystery holds always holds out this promise that it's going to be some mind-blowing profound truth that's beyond anything i could have imagined actually when you guys were talking about this this just uh sort of gave me a really bad feeling because of of all the epic fantasies that i read you know i mean uh the Song of Ice and Fire, those are the only ones that I can actually think of where I ever have actually sat down with my friends like that and and just like talked about like the, the different uh, possibilities that might be the truth and and all that kind of stuff and then I'm thinking, well, the only other times I actually remember that is when I was talking about my friends with, like, Battlestar Galactica and Lost. <laughs> and both of those ended really terribly. And so now I'm, like, just horribly... I'm now, I'm, like, horribly frightened that uh, that Song of Ice and Fire is going to end the same way. <laughs> Wait, but let's not forget that George slammed Lost. So he must feel stronger about his ending than what they yeah. delivered in Lost. Well, and he's, he clearly wasn't just completely making it up as he was going along like on Lost they were, where they had no idea where it was going, and they, you know, just sort of jammed it all together. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm only sort of, ha I'm only half serious there, but, I mean, I, I do have a little dread there that, like, I mean, you know, because there is so much that we're invested in this, and then it, it could so easily just uh, be completely unsatisfying and then retroactively, you know, in, at least in Don't some say that. It could retroactively not maybe. I said, don't say that. Maybe not ruin the series, <laughs> but uh, tarnish its memory. I mean, but if you're saying, John, like, are there other examples? I mean, all my favorite series, you know, are examples of that, like, you know, I would say Book of the New Sun and Amber in particular. I mean, Amber, like, what, I, you know, every book or so, you find out that what you thought was the underlying nature of reality is actually something completely different uh, than what you thought. It's just sort of the constantly peeling away layers of the. Onion, and I think that's why that's my favorite series is because 
you know, it sort of goes farthest down the rabbit hole of anything I've ever read uh, in that respect. The other thing in Song of Ice and Fire for me that that I need to have closure on is just some of the, you know, like, who's so-and-so's parent? And like, <laughs> you know, was this person really the mother or was this other person, you know, without getting too detailed? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I have suspicions about all of these. So I just want to know if I'm right or not. But like that stuff really, you know, like I sit there and I have, but oh, but maybe, or like there's prophecies and stuff and you think, is it this guy or is it this guy or is it going to be this guy? Mm-hmm. And and like that stuff is fun to speculate about. And I think it's one of those things where it's it's like whatever the answer is, I don't think I'll be too disappointed, but I'll, I have my suspicions about who it's going to be. Yeah, actually, if anything is a tri- uh, demonstrates that Song of Ice and Fire is just a triumph of world building and building mystery, it's like if you if you like Google around to like you know, I want to read theories about so and so's mother or whatever you know, and it's like there are some theories that are like so detailed, it's like it's amazing that it's like literally these people have poured over the text and they've brought so much evidence for like three distinct possibilities that all seem quite valid, and I'm like holy crap, I can't even believe that like there's that much stuff in this text that you can pull out and and come up with all of these alternate scenarios, and I mean I think there's one that seems more likely than others of in in the case that I'm talking about, but um. You know, it's just that's like a real triumph that there's that much stuff there for the reader to imagine and, and you know, play with. But I, I don't wonder if, if all, I mean, because I didn't actually like Book of the New Sun the first time I read it. And it was only the second time I sort of started liking it more. And now I just find it, for the most part, just absolutely enthralling because it's so freaking weird. But I, I wonder if that's not the ultimate solution to the problem is just to present all the mysteries and never give you the solutions because as i was saying you know the the solutions never going to be as intriguing as the mystery and um when you when you say you know things like Battlestar Galactica or Lost where they they try to give a, a a shitty solution you know the whole thing the whole you know house of cards just collapses completely and you know there's nothing else i've ever read like book of book of the new sun and you know, I wish people would stop trying to imitate Tolkien or something and do something more in that vein. Because, I mean, I think that's that's where the potential uh, for this sort of fiction lies. Actually, you know, we uh, Dave, Dave, you and I were talking about uh, MacArthur Genius Grants uh, the other day and, uh, you know, some genre authors who have gotten those. I'm kind of kind of surprised Gene Wolfe hasn't gotten that. I mean, just because he's so venerated in the community. And I mean, I know that's spilled out into mainstream literature as well. I mean, there's people like I mean, like Michael Swanwick has this quote about him that says that he's the finest writer in the English language, period. You know, any genre, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, and then Book of the New Sun is certainly a like the book you would hold up to be like, look, this dude is a genius. So, hey, Dave, so just out of curiosity, um, have you ever reread, uh, have you reread Book of the New Sun since that uh, lexicon came out? And if if so, had you, uh, you know, used it, or like, had you had it handy to reference when you were rereading it or anything? Yeah, well, I've reread it. I mean, I, there's a bunch of stuff I read. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from the lexicon Earthus, there's this book by Michael Andre Druisi called um, uh, Attending Daedalus. And it's like you were saying, like people have crazy theories about Song of Ice and Fire. This is like crazy theories about Book of the New Sun. And you would not believe how, hmm. how just like out there these theories are. 
And it's, it's like the kind of book you start reading it. You're like, wait, is this guy crazy or am I crazy? Because <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's so many like obscure connections between things in the text. And you're like, could this possibly be intentional? Uh, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I have I have read the book. I have gone back to the source books after having read that. I, I got the GURPS. There's a GURPS role playing game book that has some stuff. <laughs> really? You know, oh, yeah. That's cool. Um. All right, cool. So I think we should start wrapping this up. So uh, before we let you go, Raj, uh, congrats again on selling your first novel. You want to just tell tell the people a little bit about it? Sure. It's a post-apocalyptic book. It's set in the future in a time where a, vir a virulent disease has infected most of the Earth's population um, and kind of regressed them mentally um, into kind of an animal-like state. And it's such a virulent disease that people have kind of taken to um, spending a lot of their time, or a certain group of people have spent their time in the air, um, because in the future, because gas is so expensive, people have started flying airships again. So um, it's basically about this guy who starts out as a scavenger who, you know, has his own airship and goes down to the ground um, to pick up things from the ruins of civilization. Uh, and then he gets caught up with a bunch of renegade scientists and, and hilarity ensues. And is this the first in a series? Right now it's, it's the first. Um, and I guess we'll see. I mean, I, I would love to write more, but it, it depends. Uh -huh. All right, cool. So everybody watch out for that. And uh, Raj, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me again. And Doug, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And thanks again to Scott Lynch for being our guest today. And big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Cronman23, Director Dave and B Science Fiction in the US, Mockup Design Labs and Dr. James Philman in the UK, and Tom Tom Have Lost a Customer in Australia. Dr. Philman writes, Today's sci-fi is tomorrow's science, and the guests and topics you guys debate and discuss have inspired young minds to take up science and physics in schools. Thank you. So big thanks to Dr. Philman for that great comment. We'd also like to give a special thank you to Charles Floating, subscriber number 28, for making a second contribution to the show. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksgunshow.com and click on subscribe. And remember to go check out the Kickstarter for John's new anthology, Help Fund My Robot Army, at johnjosephadams.com slash kickstarter. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and if you live in the New York area and want to hang out with me and other listeners, follow Geek's Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.